How is my PhD research project going? This is a question I get a lot these days. And today on the show, we have a cross-posted episode from Teaching Writers Speak. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Any day that I get to talk with my friend Ty Walkland is a good day. This episode that you're about to hear is an interview Ty did for the show that he hosts, Teaching Writers Speak, which is part of the Toronto Writing Project. I'll put links for both of those in the show notes so that you can bookmark them and go check them out. I'm a producer of this podcast, Teaching Writers Speak, and so it felt necessary to not only formally introduce Teaching Tomorrow listeners to the show, but also to transplant this conversation as a way to explain some of the questions behind the research project that I am wading into. I'll let Ty formally introduce this episode with his dreamy, buttery voice. Enjoy. I think ultimately we all have a deep need to be connected and to be heard. And that's what, that's what putting myself out there on social media has meant for me. How do teachers navigate the boundaries between the physical world of the classroom and the virtual worlds of social media, podcasting, and digital composition? Celeste Kirsch, our guest today, has been tracing those boundaries for over 10 years. Celeste is a middle school English and social studies teacher, as well as a blogger, podcaster, social media presence, and now a PhD candidate at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Her name will be familiar to any of you who've tuned into previous episodes of our show, since it's her editing expertise and technical wizardry that deliver these conversations to your ears. You might also know Celeste from her own podcast, Teaching Tomorrow, where she riffs on the future of learning with a range of top-notch guests. Today, Celeste shares what it's like to be an educator who is teaching and learning out loud in a public sphere, and how she continues to straddle the virtual world and the so-called real world as a teacher educator and emerging scholar of digital composition. Let's dive in. I, even, I don't even remember how we start these things anymore. It's been so long. <laughs> um, well, I mean, maybe okay. we'll start with the fact that, hello, you're Celeste Kirsch, and you are a familiar name to anybody who's tuned into our little show before, because uh, you have, you know, without you, we wouldn't have a show. Um, you know, you are our producer, you are our patient and expert editor. Uh, you really are the reason that we have sounds in people's ears. But our listeners might want to know other things about you. So I guess I'm my first question, this is our standard first question, you know this because you help us dream this show up, um, is what would you like our listeners to know about you, Celeste? Well, number one, thank you for having me on the show. It's so nice to be on this side of the mic with you and I've had you on mm. my show before. So just a delight to get to chat with you in a more formalized way. Mm. Uh, So where to begin? My name is Celeste Kirsch. I use she, her pronouns. I am, I don't know, middle-aged white lady living in Toronto and I am a PhD student and I'm Mm. looking at studying digital multimodal composing. And when I say that to people, they kind of look at me funny and I'm like, writing in a digital space. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> um, I've been teaching middle school English and social studies for 11-ish years. Uh, I'm a mom of two little humans, and I don't know what else is relevant to say, but I like running, and I like carbohydrates. 
Oh, yeah, I will totally co-sign on the carbohydrates. I can't quite co-sign on <laughs> running. I'm still working up the nerve to get back out. Um, listeners, Celeste ran through the rain and snow this morning before hopping on this mic. So that's how you know what a, can I say badass? Is that allowed on our podcast? I don't um, think that we're X-rated, but I think now we are. So now yes, we are. you can okay. say it. We'll just put a little, little click on that box. Our editor just gave me the green light that I can say <laughs> that our editor and producer Celeste is a badass who runs through the rain and the sleet and is a teacher, um, and PhD student and mom, as you said, um, and the other thing you said too, which is that you are a, a podcast host. I mean, that is right. again, the reason that we have a podcast is yes. because you came on board as somebody who had already for a few years been producing um, and composing your own show, Teaching Tomorrow, which if folks have not yet tuned into that show, if they haven't found their way to us through that show, because as Celeste mentioned, I was very fortunate to be a guest on that show. Please add it to your queue, Run, Don't Walk to Teaching Tomorrow. And I guess I'm curious about you know, you were a teacher, you were a classroom teacher when you uh, began working on that podcast and sending it out into the world. And I, could you tell us a little bit about how you found yourself in the world of podcasting and, you know, give us a bit of a timeline and a, why a podcast for Celeste Kirsch? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I sort of joke that everybody has a podcast now, but then I have to remind myself <laughs> that that's not actually legitimately true. I think like the long answer, there's like a long answer and a short answer, but the long answer is I think that I've always been the kind of nerdy person who is just comfortable putting herself out there in the world and taking those kinds of awkward flings mm. of herself into public spaces. I, I Like I was a drama person in high school and just kind of got used to being cringy in front of other people and to embrace what that is. Uh, and you know, like when I was a, I was a drama undergrad at the University of Waterloo, which is a very uh, unlikely place to do a drama degree. But the beauty of that is that there's a lot of freedom. And, you know, one of my friends at the time, we like wrote and produced our own play and it was also very cringy. And I think that that kind of ability to do something, even if it sucks, and to learn through putting yourself out there is something that I think has always been true for me as a person. Hmm. And it's, you know, like a blessing and a curse. Like you do some really cool things and you get to meet really incredible people like you and Velta and Rob. Like even it's like just so amazing how like just by having the podcast it kind of opens you up to getting to know other people like it's really been a blessing that way like I wouldn't know you if I didn't have mm. this thing that I nerd out on but the like the actual more practical answer is that I had a blog that I had started with this professional development group called Cohort 21 which is from CIS Ontario. So it's like a network of independent schools, mostly based out of Ontario. And it was just basically like a teacher blog. Like I would kind of explore things that I was doing in my classroom and practices that I was trying on and questions that I had. And, you know, like the blog was like read by other independent school teachers. So it wasn't, you know, widely circulated. It wasn't, you know, sponsored or anything like that. It was just like a muck around space. Hmm. And then after I think teaching, it was like 2018. So I was teaching for like eight years ish. And I, I was just having a lot of really powerful, interesting conversations with people with this cohort 21 thing that I was part of. And it felt like I wanted to deprivatize what was going on in these private schools. Hmm. So independent schools that people don't know, there's 
private schools and there's independent schools. And they're essentially the same thing, which is schools that charge tuition. And they're very elite exclusive spaces. And it always kind of felt tricky for me as, you know, the girl who grew up without a lot of wealth or any wealth to be in these kinds of exclusive conversations that not everyone was part of. And I wanted to try to bring more people into those conversations and then open up those conversations to people that weren't just in that little bubble of Ontario independent schools. And then I was also obsessed with podcasts. I think like, you know, this is probably, I'm sure that there is better data out there, but I feel like this is, you know, around 2018 is like the golden era of podcasts Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. forward to now. So I was growing up, not growing up, but I was, you know, a young person in Toronto listening to all these podcasts that were just like really well done, professionally produced, like This American Life, Radio Lab, The Moth, mm. Savage Love. And I was like blown, like it was like mind blowing to me that all these podcasts were just free. I'm like, I have an iPod and I can just download these. <laughs> and like Ira Glass doesn't mind that I just keep listening. And like it Loves was it actually. Yeah. And I didn't have to pay for it. Like I donated to some of them, but it really opened my eye ears not my eyes but my ears to what really great produced content can do and I just felt like these were people that I was with like I was with Dan Savage as I was walking my dog Mm -hmm. and I was with Jad Abumrad while I was biking across the city and I think around 2018 I was like training for a marathon or something and I started listening to running podcasts and this is like the first time where I was listening to podcasts where they were like low budget and not saying that under derogatory way, but compared to like This American Life that are these very highly produced shows to like the show of one person and their microphone interviewing mm. other mm. people in that very specific niche. And it blew my mind because it was the first time that it was, I was listening to somebody like me basically doing something in their house. And I remember thinking I could do that. Like, I I really like interviewing people. Like, I had interviewed people with my master's thesis. I really enjoyed just talking to people. And, and you're really out. good at it. You're really Thanks, good friend. at it too. Well, so are you. <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's a really special thing when you can create space for a conversation with somebody else mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. give them the honor of questions. You know, I don't take you asking mm. me on this podcast lately. I think it's a really special space that gets created. So the running podcast, you know, kind of opened my mind to how it is just possible to make it like you don't need a Mm. lot, you need a microphone, and you need to have a place to put your shows. So it was a way to like take the blog and do something else with it. So I started just by interviewing people that I taught with at my school, and then people in this cohort 21 community. And then slowly it just kind of like spread a little bit wider and wider. Mm. And then it just became like kind of a coping mechanism. Like I remember going a lot harder into podcasting when everything shut down with the pandemic. And I was really like, just felt like I was, didn't have a community anymore. So I was, you know, putting out shows once a week. And that for me felt like a way to connect with other people about big questions that I had. So it's been a form of professional learning for me over the years and a way for me to, you know, have an inquiry stance in my practice. We talk about this often Mm -hmm. in the circles that we're in around teachers having an inquiry mindset about the work that they're doing. And I think that the podcast gave me that as a teacher and helped me to see, oh, actually research is something that you can do as well. And this is a form of research. This is a form of 
curation. Well, and it sounds like too that it was very much a way of sort of extending some of your practice as a writer, you know, I mean, oh, we're, yeah. I know we're going to talk a little later about digital composition and how sort of integral that is to some of the work that you're doing now and the ways that you are engaged as a writer. Um, I want to go back to something you said, you know, you talked about, you used the word cringy twice. And I promise <laughs> as a, a listener of Teaching Tomorrow, I've not once cringed listening to that show. Aw, um, thanks. You know, but some of you said about, you know, sort of taking the risk to put yourself out there and to participate in a public space and to make maybe somewhat private conversations more available. And you've shared with me in the past that I that you did receive or you have received some pushback as somebody, as a teacher, specifically a classroom teacher, K-12 teacher, who is visibly participating, you know, on social media and is producing and publishing content online. And I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit about navigating some of that pushback and maybe a little bit about how your digital online presence and your presence as a your physical presence as a classroom teacher what those two identities maybe have to do with one another that's maybe a two for one question that's one of my habits as a host but yeah. yeah i mean i don't know how well i navigated that pushback i i think i just cried a lot when there was any <laughs> kind of pushback i just cried yeah it's tricky because Obviously, there is a risk in putting yourself out there, and that's part of it. You know, you have to kind of be willing to accept it not being received well. And I, I think, like, I don't want to get too much into the specifics of like what the feedback has been from superiors, but for the most part, I have felt like very well supported by the leaders when I was at a specific school. And I think that the questions that would arise from people like superiors in those spaces were really around like be careful like it was really mm -hmm. coming from mm -hmm. a place of care and concern and mm -hmm. knowing the power that these tools have and i think we can talk a little bit more about the benefits and some of the costs of these digital spaces where writing can occur but it gave me a lot to think about in terms of when you put yourself out there whether that's through social media through a podcast I mean obviously it lives there for a long time and right. I knew that obviously I'm a millennial I'm an elder millennial but we know that and I think that in a way there is two camps of thinking and maybe this is more of a spectrum than two camps but there's one camp and I don't want to pigeonhole it into a generational thing but I've noted it anecdotally is more of a generational thing right. where one camp of people says like don't post anything online because that shit can come back to you mm -hmm. and you never know mm -hmm. how people are going to misinterpret it you know like when i'd be called into offices there would always be like a you know a, a quote taken out of a podcast like how would that be read in this context and i would always say like well the way that you're taking that quote is out of context you know like if you listen to the whole episode this is you know i'm sarcastic or this is kind of a flippant joke mm. but it would it would be held up to me as a way to have me reflect on it be like be careful though because taken out of context that still happens and that may look bad it may look bad on you and you may regret it later I'm grateful for that feedback and there was a lot of supportive mentorship that came along with that constructive feedback but the other camp I think which is also really valid is if you don't have anything published online about yourself as a professional that also is alarming or a red flag right. like mm. we need to have mm. some kind of online presence as professionals in the world to kind of 
document and showcase the things that you're grappling with. Right. And that I hope that if somebody were to, you know, go back into my blog archives, which are still up there and look at a post that I put up in 2010 or 2011, mm -hmm. that you can see that in context, like, oh, this is Celeste in her second year of her teaching practice. And these are the questions that she's grappling with and larger societal questions are happening here. Sometimes that nuance gets missed online, but I think that with a careful eye, like academics are doing this all the time. Like I'm sure that there's an academic who published something 20 years ago and they're like, oh, I don't agree with that now. Like, I don't know if that's where the field has moved. And so part of the risk of putting yourself out there is that your thinking changes, your thinking evolves. Mm -hmm. Something might not be as nuanced or said with the right tone that if you were carefully constructing it with seven editors behind you, it would just sound <laughs> exactly right. But I don't think we need to have that luxury to do meaningful mm. work online. So I'm kind of like, I mean, if there's a spectrum, I feel like I kind of vacillate between those two. Like I think really carefully, and I did this before pushback happened with the podcast, but I think really carefully about if a student found this, how might they view this? If a parent saw this, how might they view this? If my mother-in-law read this, how might she view this? Mm -hmm, if my mm -hmm. sister heard this, how might she view it? And with those lenses, I'm never going to get it right. But I want to be able to still think that it's worthwhile putting yourself out there anyway, because I think ultimately we all have a deep need to be connected and to be heard. And that's what, that's what putting myself out there on social media has meant for me. You know, like right. podcasting happened when I was still in the classroom. The blog happened when I was still in the classroom. My school had a really strict social media policy and I didn't want to mess with that. Like I was allowed to post stuff for the podcast, but I wasn't like working through questions on Instagram. I wasn't like working through my own practice. I wasn't even putting my face up there when I was still in the classroom. Mm -hmm. When I left the classroom in 2021, then I started to experiment a little bit more with that space and see mm -hmm. what I could do. Mm -hmm. And that was really conscious for me. Like I, I was aware of the kinds of pushback that I may experience. And I was really threading a really careful line between you know, teaching is a public persona. And I wanted Absolutely. to be yeah. really careful that nothing would be overly misconstrued. But I think and it is interesting, like this is maybe like tangential, but there are teachers in circles that I'm part of that would have, you know, a opinion piece or a, like a, I can't remember what it's called, like an, a column. They had a column sure. with a major Canadian newspaper and this person was writing often and sometimes from like a conservative perspective. And that didn't seem to be questioned in the same way that writing mm. in a podcast was questioned. Mm. Mm. And that was even brought up in a meeting like, well, when this person writes, you know, like uh, it's like slightly conservative leaning viewpoints in this newspaper, we're not questioning that person in the same way. And for me, that that felt like, well, you know, there's something about this medium of podcasting that feels different. And yeah. it's through a self-published mechanism. So that is true. Like there mm -hmm. isn't somebody checking my podcast before they go out. I don't have like an editor or peer reviewers, but I think that there is something less comfortable for different generations about new media and it's unfamiliar. It doesn't seem to be as polished sometimes. And because of that, I think that there's more caution. There's more yeah. cause for concern. And I do think that that is valid often, 
And I don't think that it means that as educators, we should not be doing that. I think we have to be using the power of what like a podcast or a blog or a social media profile can do, but to kind of be aware of the risks and to practice like a harm reduction approach. Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, like I've, you don't always have your community in your school. You don't always have your teaching tribe down the hall from you. And it, it is no wonder to me that I started podcasting harder and creating more content, the more isolated I became right, as an educator. Right. Yeah. I needed to find that community. And even, even when I had that pushback, there was more voices coming to me saying, wow, that episode, like that changed something. I had to mm. re-listen to that episode a few times and take notes because of, you know, how deep the, the person was on your show. And that for me said, okay, yes, there's pushback, but there is also tremendous value that is being created for people. Absolutely. And Which is why our folks need to go and listen if they haven't listened already, right? It's like, again, it's your your next step after spending some time with us here in this conversation is to, is to go and spend some time uh, with teaching tomorrow. There are so many threads to pull on what you what you said, you know, in terms of the way that we are really grappling in real time as these tools become available to us, as we begin to engage with them. Um, and as you said, the fact is that many of us live a lot of our lives online. Um, that was true before the pandemic. It's certainly true uh, as we've continued to navigate through the pandemic. Um, and it stands to reason then that as uh, educators, we need to be maybe able to find or carve out some space in that in that world, because that is where so many of our students are, mm -hmm. are living. Um, so many of the questions you, you, you raised in, in your previous comment too, in terms of some of the ethical tensions, some of the, even some of the, the sort of medium and technological tensions for lack of better phrasing that you're navigating. I mean, that's followed you into graduate school now, right? I mean, these mm. are, these feel like part of the substance of the questions you're now asking as a teacher educator, as a PhD researcher. Yeah, totally. You know, in digital composition and participating in those sort of virtual spaces and producing in those virtual spaces seems to be kind of at the heart of some of the work you're doing now. And I, I'm curious to know, I've heard you use the phrase journalistic learning, and I know mm -hmm. that you've dedicated episodes of your show to, to unpacking some of those ideas. Uh, I've been lucky enough to read about them and some of the wonderful papers you've mm -hmm. written in your program. I guess I'm curious what journalistic learning and digital composition, how you've been sort of engaging that in the classroom or maybe inviting students, both uh, your middle school students, but maybe also now that you're working with teacher candidates, some of those mm -hmm. students, how are you engaging with uh, sort of digital composition and journalistic learning? And why, again, I feel like you maybe just answered this, you know, why might it feel particularly relevant now that we yeah. do engage in some of those questions and some of those tools? It's something that I've been trying to work through and journalistic learning is just a fancy word for when journalism is happening in a classroom. Hmm. So, you know, like journalism is a profession and journalism can also be a pedagogical tool. And I didn't really consider this. I just thought like, it's our unit on journalism. But uh, Dr. Ed Madison, who is on my show, he came up with that term. I'm pretty sure he came up with that term. That's where I first read about it, journalistic learning. And it, it's basically like taking the principles of what journalists do and bringing those into a classroom. So mm. I, I see it as separate from your school newspaper, although I'm sure that one could argue that that's still journalistic learning because it's like an academic club. Right. But I think about it as you know, we're, we're doing this unit and we're going to be, you're going to be writing a journalism piece after you're going to be creating a journalism podcast that for me feels more pedagogically 
driven. Like it's really about the learning rather than about the um, publication of a certain document. So yeah, how am I using that? I started using it with my grade eight class. I had inherited this, you know, amazing unit from the teacher who had taught grade eight previous to me. And it was basically like a traditional newspaper that the students were creating. And, you know, with my students interviewing real people and finding, going deeper into like a real issue that they cared a lot about. Sometimes we tied it to like the city of Toronto. Sometimes it was more open. I, I like saw these really powerful things happening with my students that I couldn't ignore. And the first year I did it, the whole unit just like really flopped and it wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. But as I kept working through it, it got stronger and stronger. And there was something so powerful about students interviewing real adults. Mm, and like mm. I had one of my students interview um, Phipps Bakery on Eglinton about the LRT going in. And like, it's just small stuff. Like she just like came into school one day. She's like, I, I got a phone call with the baker at Phipps and they were telling me that this, and turns out I've been spelling Eglinton wrong all this time. You're like, Haven't just, we all? Yeah, exactly. But like, you know, bless this grade eight student's heart. Like she would never get that jazzed up by mm, anything mm. that I told her. And I promise you, if I run into her on the street and I said like, hey, how do you spell Eglinton? She'd remember. Like it's... <laughs> The number of times that something just sparked because it was authentic, there was a real audience, they had to talk to somebody that wasn't just their teacher, it it shifted something really powerfully. And then I noticed that as we were then reading other news articles or engaging with media later, they were just more deeply aware of their bias because they were grappling with, wait a second, I have all this data here and I can just tell whatever story this data mm. is telling me. It mm. kind of blew their minds a little bit when they realized all journalists have a bias. Oh my God. <laughs> like, I think that, I think that we have this, like the, the convention of writing something in third person and this happened, then this happened, then this happened makes it seem like it is just like the straight up facts. Mm. But then young people realize that they can choose the facts that go into that article or that they get to decide who they interview. And that's, you know, like can change the flavor of the article. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can have, we even did this exercise where I just gave them all the facts, like gave them the quotes, gave them the sources, and then they could just massage that into whatever mm -hmm. piece they wanted mm -hmm. to. And it was illuminating realizing that everyone started with the same facts, but depending on which facts you chose to put in, how you wrote about them, change this nature of the story that you are presented with. So I saw that by writing journalistically, mm. my students then became more critical consumers of the media. They were starting to see what was behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz. And <laughs> I don't think, and I maybe it's true, and I would love to talk to other teachers about this, but I don't believe that they would have arrived at the same place if they, we were just doing a unit on like critical reading of the news or sure. critical engagement, there's something I think about writing. And we mm. know that reading and writing is a reciprocal process. There's something about writing that makes you a better reader. Mm. And like, I found that in my own work. Like I am more, what, like, for example, I don't know if I should tell you this, but as I'm writing like my own comp exam, I was reading your comp exam and thinking really carefully about the moves you were making as a writer. And I wasn't like, you know, we have very different topics, but I was thinking more carefully about how you were 
lining up an argument. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant the way Ty is doing that. I am going to think about like how I could use a similar structure to tee up an argument in my work and that we become better mm. writers by being more critical readers. So I saw that loop really mm. clearly in mm. my own class. So like where I am like kind of positioning journalistic learning now, I miraculously had the most amazing thing fall into my little PhD lap where I got to teach uh, intermediate senior section of an English methods course. And it has literally been the unicorn of my life that has just like filled it up with such joy and sparkles. Mm. Because I'm working with these teacher candidates, I knew that this would be a perfect vehicle to try on some of this. And right. it, it kind of is coming at an intersection of a few different points. But the first is that I was reading through the research that writing is one of those areas that new teachers going into the field feel the least prepared for. So yeah, that was actually the question I was going to ask yeah. you next, because you had shared with me some of the, <clears throat> some of what you had observed, right. Of some of those exactly. fears and some of the nerves that a lot of us going into uh, teacher ed programs are feeling. And maybe that's because yes. we often don't write a lot when we're, we're students too, you know? Yeah. And um, I think there's a lot of systemic things that kind of go into that. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe we can piece through those, but I, I think that there has been this huge shift in the way that we view literacy. And unfortunately, I think that that, you know, idea of like preparing young children for the world of literacy really has fallen into reading, like reading readiness. And the, the other side of it, which is writing, like I see reading as like breathing in and writing as exhaling, like the other half of that equation of exhaling and producing and writing and composing, that sometimes gets ignored. So my teacher candidates like reflected that right away. Like mm, we have mm. a lot of questions about teaching writing. So I right. knew that this would be, you know, a really prime place to situate journalistic learning. Mm -hmm. um, but then also digital writing is something that is not viewed as real writing. You know, mm, Kristen Turner, mm. Troy Hicks, they have like this great piece about how writing is often not viewed as real writing when it's through a podcast, when it's through right. a social media post, when it is a, you know, film clip that you're making. So I wanted to challenge, you know, that kind of idea of writing as a five paragraph essay or writing as a poem that you're doing or writing as a memoir piece. You know, writing can be a TikTok. Writing can be a reel. Writing can be a podcast that you're creating. And that when we layer on something like journalistic learning on it, I feel like it elevates it ever so slightly um, because I don't think it needs to be elevated. But I think that my hunch is that it creates a standard of practice where we're not just making a reel because it's funny. We're actually basing it in some element of truth. Hmm. We're basing it in verified reliable sources. We're creating this thing that is, you know, maybe funny or entertaining, but also is trying to inform and educate, but maybe also through entertainment as well. So the kind of like digital composing, journalistic learning layered on top of each other, I hope that it brings an element of, oh, this is real writing. Like I mm. want, what I want for early career teachers is to see that digital multimodal composing is real writing. It's real writing. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean, did you get your teacher candidates making TikToks, making podcasts, yeah. funny or not? I mean, how did you work to soften some of those nerves of being feeling really ill-equipped? I mean, it sounds like part of it was just broadening the definition of what counts as writing and maybe, maybe both lowering the stakes, but also situating the stakes in 
the current context of, you yes. know, we, we live online, we have, you know, we, we have misinformation, disinformation, and other kinds of forces that we need to be sort of mindful of as we're producing and consuming. But what did you get those folks doing in your classroom to, to sort of feel maybe better equipped um, to support themselves and their future students? Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. And I, everything that I did with these teacher candidates, I feel like is a culmination of everything that I've learned in my own classroom. So it was so gratifying because I'm coming at this from a place of, I strongly believe that if we're not doing it as teachers, then we're not going to know how to do it with our students. Hmm. So it was, you know, obviously inspired by the work that National Writing Project is doing, which is you have to write in order to become a teacher of writing. Hmm. And so I was coming at I, all the things that we did in our class was kind of from that lens, from that entry point. But with digital and multimodal composing, I wanted, like you said, to lower the stakes, but also to have them create, like have them do something. So like the project that we kind of walked through was something that I adopted from Dr. Rob Simon, because he taught the course before I did and bless his heart. He let me have his syllabus, syllabi. Like I had several syllabi that I was able to kind of work from. So this was adopted from a piece that he had his students do, which was interview a young person about their literacy practices. So that was step one for the teacher candidates. And that was like, so cool because I could I could stand and talk to them about multiliteracies, new London group, like la la la. <laughs> all those like, fancy words, put them all yeah. on the board. Yeah. I can talk to them about like the situation that is out there, but nothing, they wouldn't really buy that. I'm sure they would because they're lovely people. But well, and you're kind of a unicorn yourself, Celeste. I mean, you know, thanks, man. They were pretty lucky to have you. Thanks for saying that. But the uh, you know, like I I think that there's just so much more true when you're interviewing a 14-year-old about their life and they're saying the same kinds of things that research is saying. Or they're saying like, yeah, I'm spending X amount of hours on day all day online or these are the kinds of tools that I'm engaging with or this is, I, I wish my English teachers knew this about my life. So they interviewed a young person about their literacy practices and mm -hmm. shocking to nobody, they're very digital and they're doing a lot online and they're engaging with these tools in really interesting, creative, thoughtful ways. And then once they had that data, like data from an interview, they were turning them into these short analytic memos. So, you know, take this and synthesize the information that you took out of this interview and turn it into like a one page piece about like, what are you, what are you noticing? What are the trends? What are you stuck with? What are your questions? How might this inform your future practice? So that was the piece that they actually turned in that was part of the syllabus that was part of, you know, the graded component of their class. I wanted whatever they did with that next step to be completely ungraded because number one, mm. I didn't feel like it was fair to tie it to their mark. What I'm saying, let's experiment. I think that there's mm. no better way to squash creativity when you're worried about, will this impact my final mark is, I think that I still knew that they may have this idea that it's not real writing. So I didn't want to increase their anxiety around, I don't want this to not be good enough, or I don't know if this will meet the criteria. And I didn't know how to make the criteria for something that could be a TikTok or something that could be a podcast. So I just right. said, like, let's experiment together. Like, let's mm. take some risks. This is not going to be tied to your mark. We're going to do this in class. So you don't have to take it home on top of your other schoolwork. I will create these like workshop spaces for you. So, you know, we looked at different examples and all of the examples were 
things that were rooted in journalistic thinking, journalistic writing, journalistic learning. So if you ever are on TikTok and you can like search up the Washington Post TikTok account, they're doing some really freaking cool stuff because it's a TikTok. Like you scroll through and you see it and you're like, oh, this is interesting. But it's taking the fundamental facts of a news article, but they're okay. turning it into like a short skit. And right. they're not like embellishing it. They're not turning it into satire the way that SNL might, but they're actually like creating these short digestible pieces. And sometimes when I watch them, I'm like, oh, now I want to go read that article. Like now mm -hmm. I want to know more about what that's about. So all the things that we looked at as examples were based in journalism so that they can kind of see, oh, how does a podcast sound on the daily versus this other kind of podcast, but they're both rooted in journalism. And then they may be looking at a TikTok or at like a carousel post on social media. The basic ask was take the things that you learned in your analytic memo and still preserving that student's privacy, like, because I didn't want like that student's identity to be broadcast sure. to the class, yeah. but take the things <clears throat> that you learn and turn it into something that is connected to digital multimodal composing. Mm. And they were mm. amazing. Like they had so much fun with them and knowing that it wasn't tied to the marks, I think made a huge difference. It was just about a sandbox. And we did so much stuff in that class that wasn't about a mark. Like we would just do like short bursts of writing or the where I'm from poems or, you know, like these little pieces that weren't about a mark. They weren't mm -hmm. about turning something in. It was about let's play and let's right. see what this means for us as teachers. And then like what, you know, like, I don't know what that will translate yet into when they actually get into the practice of teaching, but I hope that by experimenting with it firsthand, there is a sense of, oh, this isn't that hard, or, oh, I get how this is valuable, or, oh, I get how this actually elicits a different kind of thinking, and that it is also writing. It is also a valid form of creation. I, I'm like mm. really, really freaking excited to see what happens when I get to interview them. So the, the process of this- Right. Study, well, because I was going to say, I mean, this is now sort of teeing up for you know, this new hat you're wearing, which is soon to be Dr. Celeste, right? You are <laughs> now <soon. laughs> fully immersed in a PhD program. You know, yeah. you are about to um, dive into doing dissertation research. And I know that's sort of extending from this wonderful sandboxing you've been doing with your teacher candidates. Side note, not only do we have to listen to Celeste's podcast, we need to find our way to get into Celeste's class so we can also have fun in the sandbox. Um, um, in the sandbox. It absolutely. Is um, so I'm curious about, you know, tell us, yeah, tell us about this sort of project you're dreaming up and where you're kind of hoping to chase that over the next little while. Um, and what are some of your hopes for that, for that project, for this new version of you that is coming to the page as a, as a dissertation writer? I mean, I hope that I finish it. Like, I hope that Me I- Me too. Same, same, same yeah. for myself. Yeah. Like, my hope <laughs> is that I get a PhD from this process. I earn a PhD. I, like, I think, like, next steps are- I, I, so it's interesting, like I've never done a dissertation project before, but when doing research in your own classroom, which makes a lot of sense, I needed to, I need to submit their final grades before I can see who is consented to be part of the study. So I am very excited for the day that I get to put the marks in, which is coming up in a few weeks. And then I will actually know who is part the of the The curtain will part and yes. everything will be revealed. Yes. Dr. Simon will hand me an envelope of papers. <laughs> the papers are their signed consent forms for those people who can't imagine what is in mm. this paper of the envelope of papers. 
I want, I want to be interviewing them. And I'm in the second year of my program right now, which I think is like a funny time to do research because I don't know the weird thing about a PhD program is that it can take a long time and it could extend out even further if I wanted it to. But knowing that I'm collecting data now at like an early ish stage of the process, I hope to be able to follow up with people in that class because the class was first year students and second year students. So presumably some of those people will graduate and have jobs in a school setting. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about following up with some of those people after they've been teaching for X amount of months, like kind of towards a year ish of time. Um, And to see like, has your, has your thinking about digital composing shifted? Like, are you doing this in your practice? Are there barriers in your practice? I like the idea of time being a factor Mm. and to follow up Mm. because I mean, as a teacher, we do all these really interesting projects in our class, but we don't always have the luxury to follow up with people that we worked with a little while later to say, Hey, are you still thinking about this? Or, Hey, Mm. has this had any impact on you? Or, Hey, how are you thinking about this now? You know, sometimes we might get that luxury. And honestly, like, when we are talking in a few months time, it might be like, no, that project sucked. And this is why, which I think is actually really interesting. And Absolutely. I'm, I'm like really fascinated to see what happens, like to mm. follow the thread of this little sandbox activity that we did. Because my hunch is that it it does make an impact. When I actually, like through cohort 21, when I actually was engaged in an inquiry experience as a mm. teacher, I got better at how to do inquiry with my students. Like, I'm a student, I was born in 82, so I went to school in the like late 80s, 90s, late, I guess like early 2000s, but no one was doing inquiry when I was a young person. So to actually understand how to do a different kind of teaching and do a different kind of learning to reimagine you know, what the boundaries of writing can be in a program, I think we have to experience it ourselves. Absolutely. Um, so I don't know, like after the dissertation, after the PhD, what will happen, but I love working with teachers. Like I freaking was obsessed with this class. And like every day I would come in and be like, you guys just make my heart so happy. And they, I didn't say guys, I really worked hard at not saying guys, but it, it was clear to me that working with teachers gives me a lot of energy and Mm. that there's something really powerful about engaging with a different kind of way of doing school, like engaging with a different kind of way of being a teacher, finding like a more hopeful way to do English class, that for me just felt really energizing. So whatever Mm. I do after, like the the best thing about being a PhD student is that it's this little incubator and I don't know what I'm going to do after. I see a lot of things as possible. And I don't think that ever, whenever I was in the classroom teaching, I ever had the bandwidth to imagine what else I could do other than teaching. Because it's Mm -hmm. just like Mm -hmm. everything you're doing is report cards. And then I have to get this thing in and I have to, now I actually have a little tiny bit of space to see different little footpaths that I might wind down. But all of them really honestly have to do with working with teachers, working with educators. Who are going to be just like your class this year, who are going to be, you know, feeling that heart, that heart, uh, you know, the your heart getting three times too big. Sorry, that's a bad, that's a bad nod. <laughs> I started you're not a as Grinch. the Grinch. <laughs> I'm a Grinch. You're not a Grinch. But you know, that there's going to be that mutual heart feeling, I know, because of what a wonderful teacher you, I mean, you've been a wonderful teacher to me too, as a newbie podcast host. 
Um, you know, you've been such an incredible mentor. So I, wherever that path takes you and whatever, you know, whatever uh, future the crystal ball says is yours, you know, it's going to be whoever is in your presence is going to be so lucky. Oh, and um, I think that we, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes here. I have, I have this sort of burning question I have to ask you because <laughs> I continue to learn from you about the benefits of digital or not the benefits, but the the sort of possibilities of that digital sandbox of digital composition and of working in virtual spaces. I, as, as you know, and maybe some of our listeners maybe are aware now, I'm a little allergic to social media. I am not a particularly, you know, sure I get to sit in a podcast host and I get to be part of some digital composition. I'm a, I'm also quite offline and you and I've had some interesting conversations mm -hmm. about, you know, sort of navigating those online offline lives because I'm a friend of yours I also know that you've made a really interesting decision and I had to ask you about it which is you know here you are you are a digital composer you are a podcaster you you were an active blogger through throughout your teaching career you know you've been very much um if not online certainly had a toe online and certainly engaging in very intentionally with technology and and producing digital spaces as a parent, <laughs> you've made the decision to enroll at least your eldest child, I don't know if both your kids will end up going here, in a tech-free school. Yeah. And I'm just, I have to, like, I can't <laughs> not ask you about this, Celeste. I mean, here you are, you are a mogul for tech composition, digital composition, and you've opted uh, to, to not maybe create space at this moment in time, at least for your child to participate in some of that, um, yeah. or at least at school. Can you walk us through? <laughs> oh that? man, you said we only have a few minutes, so I don't know how that can be. Maybe that's our follow up <laughs> for our next episode. I mean, that's like that no, could be its, it's whole thing. A really valid question, and a teacher on the schoolyard when she found out I was doing a PhD and I told her what it was, she had the same. She's like, "And you're sending your kid here?" And I was like, "Yeah," but I I love that school. It's mm. uh, within the TDSB, and it's an alternative school. So you know anyone who's listening, it's publicly funded, but it, you know, you have to like submit a separate little application for and that. And TDSB is Toronto District School Board in case Thank you're you. not in our, in our midst here. Yeah. So it's, it's a complicated thing. So we sent our almost seven-year-old to school at the start of, you know, the first year back from pandemic lockdown. And mm. to be totally transparent, we chose the school, like when we were looking at the alternative schools, it stood out for us because it had a really strong outdoor ed focus. Cool. And, you know, the fact that it was low tech, I, w I wasn't picking it. I'm like, I hate technology. And it was also <laughs> pre me deciding that this was my dissertation topic. So, you know, mm. the, all those like little factors. However, I am very skeptical of technology as well. Like, mm. I think mm. I see its power, but I also see this really profound shadow side that we have to be mindful of. And who I am as a teacher and who I am as a parent are very complimentary. And I've seen some stuff, Ty. I, I saw probably the first generation of young people get smartphones and their parents, I mean, I don't know, but I think that there were some parents that I was around that was like hoping for the best, like yeah. give them these tools and yeah. see what happens. And mm -hmm. I think that Again, I'm speaking really anecdotally and just from my own experience, but I think the parents that I'm around now as a millennial are much more skeptical and weary of what these tools can do. 
And my wife and I have talked a lot about how we will approach that milestone of when our children get phones. And I don't know, like interview me and he's seven now. So I don't know, like seven years and it might be a completely different stance that I'm taking. But I think that there has to be like a certain level of cognitive ability before we introduce children to some of these tools. Mm -hmm. Like we have iPads in my house. My kids watch like they have screen time. We're not like a tech-free household, but it is very limited. My seven-year-old would love for nothing more than for me to just have Minecraft on. Like he is begging me for Minecraft. Mm. He has a few friends that are playing it. He played it at a birthday party. And like, I don't, I see how powerful it is because he's literally played it maybe two times and he is obsessed. And that worries me as a parent. Mm. And he is a young person that is actively working on strengthening his reading skills. He's actively working on being a good human. And that takes a lot of practice, turns We're out. We're all still practicing that too. Holy mother though, like to actually help a young person in grade one navigate social dynamics. Like, and this is a cohort of young people who are in grade one now that, you know, his daycare time was cut off. He was in lockdown for right. a number of months. His kindergarten year was in and out, in and out, lockdown back, lockdown back. So I am so much more concerned about developing his social skills around other human beings before I introduce like gaming and talking to your friends online. So I, okay, so this, again, this is a much longer answer, but I think that there was like this really necessary push probably around the 1970s, and somebody can fact check this and get back to me, around early literacy and reading to your children and how important it is. Like this for me was what Sesame Street was all about. Like early literacy, Mm -hmm. introduce children to letters and sounds and language and reading. And I, I think that there needs to be an equal push now for digital literacy, but in the home, because we see that- Mm -hmm. When children, when young people are taught how to be critical and critical consumers of their digital lives and these streams that are coming into their homes, they're able to navigate it differently than just when they're taught it's a tool to use to connect with your friends online. Like the reading that I've done, the research is showing that young people struggle to see how they might use these tools as a way to push forward civic engagement. They sometimes struggle to see it as more than just a place to document their photos and comment on each other's lives. So I'm very, like, I want to move really slowly with my children. And I'm seeing a lot of, (laughs) with all this AI coming out, there's now more people saying really loudly, we need to go slow with this. Mm. We need to Mm. be really thoughtful about how we're introducing this to society. Because I think it took us like 10 years to figure out social media and how we're still figuring it out. (laughs) We're still figuring it out. But I think like, you know, parents are a little bit more aware of, you know, the contours and the the sharp spots and Mm. some of the benefits, but also the real profound dangers. As a parent, I love these tools. Like Ambrose will come and sit next to me while I'm like editing a podcast. And he's, you know, like really interested in the little bars that go up and down as the sound waves. And he wants to like see me editing things. And I want him to learn those tools. And I want to be really careful and intentional about Mm. how he's exposed to these worlds because it's not, I don't want it to be a free for all. And I, I think the power of them is so profound 
that we deserve, our children deserve us to really understand what we're doing with them. So I've always thought like, if we have to have these kinds of training to get a driver's license, if I had to go through like <laughs> a young driver's course in order to get a license that says I'm allowed to operate heavy machinery as a 16 year old young person, we should have some kind of like, you know, training the program. TikTok course or the yeah, like, young Instagrammers I... training program totally. or something. Yeah, I was like really aware that there is there's something about developing frontal cortex and competencies and social skills before we just kind of let loose on them. So my stance is go slow, be careful. And maybe this is, you know, full circle conversation, like coming back to some of the mentoring that I received. And, you know, I don't know if I would call it pushback now, but like gentle suggestions of be really mm. careful because this tool is really powerful. And I want my children to have that same reverence and same critical lens on it. Well, you know, and we're our listeners, your listeners, um, your students, you know, the communities that you're now a part of, you know, we're so fortunate that we have folks like you who are really mindfully engaging and modeling for us ways that we can navigate these tools, both their profundity, their power, um, with that little asterisk of, you know, let's mm -hmm. do this slowly, let's do this with some intention. And so I, I know that I am very grateful, personally, for the way you model some of that intention and how to sort of Play in the sandbox, yes. Maybe tippy toe a little bit through the sandbox sometimes too. But to really lean into those, there's scorpions in that sandbox, so we <laughs> have to be yeah. We just have mindful to watch. of them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Before we part ways, I have to ask too. You know, again, folks, if you have not gone to listen to teaching tomorrow, thanks for sticking with us instead of just jumping in into uh, another episode with Celeste, which I know you will do. But Celeste, where can folks find you uh, and learn more <sighs> about you and your work? Yeah, like people can find me curled up on my couch under a weighted blanket. That's realistically <laughs> where you're going to find me. Um, but if you want to find me online, I feel like I'm doing more in the space of Instagram than on Twitter for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, so Instagram, I'm at teaching tomorrow. But if you are a Twitter person, um, I don't really do much on Twitter, uh, but it's at teach tomorrow in that space. Uh, and the podcast, like you so lovely, um, so lovingly plugged, it's Teaching Tomorrow. And you can find that wherever podcasts can be found. Absolutely. Well, and as you said, we will have a follow-up uh, in seven years to hear how Ambrose <laughs> is doing. But I hope that we'll have a follow-up sooner. I, I hope that we get to do this again sooner rather than later. So thanks so much for this chat today. Thank you so much, Ty. Teaching Writers Speak is a podcast developed by members of the Toronto Writing Project. The Toronto Writing Project, or TWP for short, is made up of teachers and researchers who view writing as a vehicle for change, both in our institutions and in the world at large. This episode was produced by Celeste Kirsch, Velta Douglas, and me, Ty Walkland. Celeste is our editor, and Rob Simon, TWP's director, is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Doug Friesen. You can learn more about the Toronto Writing Project and sign up for our upcoming writing workshops and speaker series by visiting www.torontowritingproject.com. Chat soon. <laughs>